Thank you for tuning in to the First Gen Hunter Podcast, the go-to resource for those seeking to establish a foundation in hunting knowledge, skills, and tactics. Well, happy Monday morning, First Gen Podcast listeners. I think this is our first ever Monday morning drop. And uh, I was kind of talking about that last time we had a Wednesday drop. My schedule is still all over the place right now, but that's okay. I anticipate some more regularity coming, hopefully soon. But, uh, you know, at least you get to start out the work week by getting to listen to your favorite hunting podcast. And uh, this is going to be one that you'll be thankful you tuned in for because we have an incredible guest lined up on this episode. And old Brandon was able to join me. And uh, it was just a ton of fun. We were joined by Mr. Kevin Murphy of Small Game Nation. And if you were to look at the list of small game hunters currently active people that just have a huge diverse range of experience not just in where they've hunted but what they've hunted you could look no further than mr kevin murphy he has quite the hunting resume and i am confident that you will see that as you get to hear all the stories he tells us and uh most importantly the tips and and uh his you know kind of personal approach that he takes to hunting all of that balled up into this great interview that we're using to celebrate the final hunting season that carries over from the fall here in my state of Iowa. I imagine it's probably similar to your state. Uh, I'm not sure what all the timelines are on different on different seasons in each state, but here in Iowa, rabbits almost always wrap up when February wraps up. Unless, of course, it's on a leap year. Then uh, it wraps up one day before February does. But it's always been on the 28th as long as I can remember. And so we got about, oh, two weeks left of rabbit season here in Iowa. And I'll tell you what, it's a ton of fun to get out there and go. Um, I have not yet gone this year. I've gotten kind of a jump start on shed hunting instead. And I just need to get out and take, like, you know, uh, a... rimfire rifle or a 410 or something like that and while i'm shed hunting you know something nice and lightweight and uh, when i see a rabbit you know go ahead and take a shot but i love going rabbit hunting and i think that after hearing what kevin has to say you'll be wanting to give it a try too so that's what this episode's about we're going to talk rabbits with mr kevin murphy but before i uh cut you loose here i just want to remind you to make sure that you are checking in with all the fine partners that i have here with first gen hunter uh one company i really want to call out every episode is our title sponsor which is spartan forge i have been leaning so hard on spartan forge these last several weeks of shed season that i have been on it every single day probably at least Oh, I don't know, four or five times a day. Yeah, yeah, that's kind of where my screen time is coming from these days. Just doing some scouting for shed season. And one thing I really want to highlight right now is the feature where you can, if you toggle your screens, 
kind of like you 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 shuffle the screen with your thumb and uh, you kind of swipe right with your thumb and it pulls up different map layers of information that you can gather from the area you're looking at and the one that I want to highlight is the landscape cover layer and what I mean by that is when you swipe to that map layer it's going to tell you what you will find on the ground that you are looking at through your aerial map will it be corn will it be soybeans will it be oats will it be pasture will it be grassland will it be deciduous forest or coniferous forest w whatever it is there is a a very clear marking of what you're going to find which i think is incredibly helpful especially for shed season when you're trying to connect all those dots of food cover uh you know of course then the southern exposure as well but that little feature on Spartan Forge is awesome. One that you definitely will enjoy once you go and take the step of becoming a Spartan Forge member and download that app onto your phone. Now, don't forget, go to my link tree and you'll find a link there for Spartan Forge. My link tree is in my Instagram profile bio or you will also find a link for Spartan Forge in the show notes on this episode so make sure you get over there get on to spartan forge and take care of that and so without any further ado let's get rolling here into episode number 81 of the first gen hunter podcast presented by spartan forge thank you so much for tuning in One of my dad's favorite movies of all time is Back to the Future. Uh, my dad is what I guess you would say would be a thinking man. And uh, there's plenty of things to ponder <laughs> when you're watching any of the Back to the Future movies in that series. Uh, all sorts of good stuff there. And, uh, you know, I start to drool over the thought of maybe owning a DeLorean myself one day. I haven't quite figured out how I'm going to come across the, uh, what's it called, the flux capacitor. And um, based on what we saw happen with Doc and his ways of acquiring uranium, to power such a device, I don't think he had necessarily the best method either. So, uh, <laughs> but uh, one of the things that I, that one of the many scenes that has just embedded itself in my brain for the long term is a scene from Back to the Future Part 3, where we see Marty McFly having gone back way far into the past. And I believe as the movie unfolds, he goes back to find Doc. And he's in like the Old West, you know, so we're talk talking probably, uh, I don't remember if it was pre-Civil War or post-Civil War, but right around that era in the mm -hmm. Old West. And uh, he comes across his uh, like great-great-grandfather, I believe. And uh, <laughs> they serve him up some dinner. And uh, his great-great-grandfather comes dragging in a couple of rabbits that he uh, shot. And in true Hollywood fashion, you know, they uh, they uh, have this whole dramatic thing where he's sitting down to eat with his 
I guess you'd say his ancestors and uh, they're drinking cloudy water and eating uh, shot filled rabbit steaks. And uh, <laughs> he spits out a few <laughs> pellets on the plate. And, uh, you know, that, that vision has just stuck in my head ever since I saw that years and years ago. And, yeah. uh, <laughs> you know what? It mm-hmm. made me think while I was putting this script together for this episode here, you know, it's probably been about that long since a lot of people were really thinking about rabbit hunting. And uh, for whatever reason, something that was very much a part of regular hunting culture not all that long ago has kind of, I don't know, maybe taken a backseat to some of the other uh, bigger game species or uh, more aquatic species. And you don't really hear much about rabbit hunting anymore. Certainly there are parts of of this country where there is a strong rabbit hunting culture that is still thriving. And uh, um, we've talked to some of those people before. We're thinking of Tremaine Benson down in Alabama and uh, the Mm -hmm. Lone Oak uh, guys out in Virginia. And uh, seeing everything that they've done, really kind of a lifestyle there, running those beagle teams to bust some bunnies. But uh, for the most part, especially here in the Midwest, where the landscape has changed so much, in the last 100 years, uh, you don't see a whole lot of rabbit hunters anymore. But it is mm. still something that is very relevant, something that is worth the time invested. And, uh, you know, we've had Brandon share some of his experiences and, and really how those have even changed in his lifetime there in Delaware as well. Yeah. And yep. so uh, I really want to bring rabbit hunting back into the limelight here a little bit. And there's no better way to do that than to go to Mr. Small Game himself, Mr. Kevin Murphy of Small Game Nation. Kevin, thank you very much for loaning some of your evening hours to us to record this episode on Hunting Rabbits. No problem. Glad to be here. Yeah, definitely. Uh, As I said, Kevin is uh, part of Small Game Nation, and um, you may have seen him uh, uh, on social media or, or in other places um, and see his approach, which um, I think is really cool because it features one of our um, probably our most famous symbiotic relationship that we as humans have. And that is what we share with canines. <laughs> mm. He's a dog guy. He likes to, uh, he likes to work some, uh, dogs that he has trained for hunting small game. And, uh, that's a lot of fun to, to see. And so we'll get to talk some more about that. Um, but I'd just say you're, you're just a plain, interesting guy, Kevin. There's lots of stuff to, lots of stuff to <laughs> see and, and, uh, wonder at when, uh, you follow along with w- what you're up to. And, uh, you know, one of those things that I also want to throw in here is you're kind of a car guy. Oh, yeah. 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 I like wheels. Jeeps, <laughs> scouts, bicycles, motorcycles, uh, boats, anything with a motor in it or that's mechanized. Uh, just uh, it, it, it intrigues me, uh, you know, and, and then you can do that in the off season, too. So and it goes hand in hand with hunting. I like the vintage stuff, the older mm the older four wheel drives and things. I just grew up with those and, uh, we had Jeeps when I was a kid and my dad finally traded them off. And I just always, uh, uh, wanted one. And then when I got where I could 
could start acquiring a few things then uh, I, I guess I got my first Jeep it was kind of one of those uh, oh uh, hokey deals on eBay where I bought something you know you're not supposed to it expired but I was still made the deal with the guy and mm-hmm. uh, I wanted him to send me the title to it he wouldn't do that uh, I knew the Jeep was not he told me the engine was bad in it and I looked at everything and thought well if I could just get the Jeep there's enough parts there that I can get my money back on if I can get it Right. and I finally got shipped in and it just so happened that I was up in Maine I was grouse hunting up there when the Jeep arrived and so uh I had a sketchy girlfriend then and I got her to meet the truck driver to unload it off of a, a carrier and then it had to be put on another truck to get to my house. So Yeah. Wow. Uh, it was it's quite of a story, but brought it back to life and it's a a sixty five C J five with a half cab. I mean, you don't see too many of, of those around. So sure. uh, it's got a newer, uh, like a 2.5 liter um, Chevy engine in it, and it's got overdrive. It's uh, the gear race, the gear uh, makeup on it's like I forgot, maybe like 16 forward gears. Oh man, one thing, maybe more than that. So you can do a lot of shifting on it. It's a fun little little uh, vehicle to uh, ride around, and it doesn't. It looks like a matchbox toy because I'll take it to town. And drive it, pull in there, and somebody would say, "Is that a regular size Jeep?" It says it does. It looks small, whatever. And I got a dog box in the back, so you know, <laughs> I like I like fooling with the old stuff that you you know it's not common to to see stuff like that. So right, kind of. I've got a scout too, and uh, I got another buddy there that we've hunted together for a long time, and he, he tells us, "Man, Murphy, when I see you in that thing, it looks like you come right out of the 1970 hunt magazine." <laughs> so. <laughs> <laughs> That's what, you know, that's what I, you know, I like stuff that I couldn't afford when I was a kid growing up and, and now that I can, and, uh, you know, hopefully I can keep it going and pass it on either to my kids or somebody else that would appreciate something like that and, and the value to, to keep our, yeah. keep our own stuff, you know, it's got its own style. Uh, it's, you got to have some skills too, to mm-hmm. keep it running and keep it going. And I don't have all those, but I got buddies that do. So, sure. uh, you know, it's, it's, it's. It's just fun, you know, food. Yeah. Like yeah, definitely. Yeah. My, my dad, he, um, I want to say maybe three years ago now purchased a 1947 Willie's off of a, uh, family member. So, uh, the person that owned it passed away and, uh, his kids didn't know what to do with it. And my dad, uh, hated to see it, you know, leave the family, I guess. And, so we offered offered him a fair price, and they were happy with it. And he's been uh, tinkering on it, fixing it up, and enjoying that for the last three years. And tell you what, uh, all of his grandkids, my kids especially, love that thing. <laughs> it's just a, it's just kind of a, a a neat thing, like you said, that vintage feel that you can bring back and and uh, and enjoy and still. Uh, appreciate you know it's worthwhile so yeah i think that's cool and i think it adds to you know kind of the the uh aura that one would would uh, get if they followed along on your instagram page not only do they get to see all sorts of small game adventures but uh you're enjoying a lot of them there in those uh vintage uh four-wheel four-wheel drive vehicles those old four by fours and uh that's that's pretty cool in my book so 
Yeah, I definitely wanted to work that in somehow. I know it doesn't quite totally relate to hunting, but hey, if you're using them to go hunting, it's close enough. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, I do, I do have a 47 CJ2A. Uh, the master of silver went down on it, and like I said, I'm nine months into a knee replacement, so Ooh. I can't do as much as what I want to do, but I'm probably six months ahead of the regular person on a knee replacement. Uh, but Dr. he put me a new uh a young person knee joint in that's uh not glue in okay uh, yeah. uh rose into the bone so you know yeah. my body didn't have that to uh you know another foreign substance all i've got is uh is the um, inert material and the metal in my knee i don't have any glue so that's probably one thing that helped me quite a bit is i didn't have three foreign substances in my body so yeah mm-hmm. like, i'm nine months in doing pretty good probably better than oh, i should right. be uh not as good as I want to be, but I'm headed that way. And then uh, probably in the next year or two, I'll get my other one fixed. And so I should be uh, mm. be good. So I'm 62 now, and I got a young person's knee. Uh, so I figure I'm going to end up be like a 42 year old. <laughs> there you go. That's right. You got got plenty more time for some plenty of small game hunting. That's right. <laughs> That's right. That's I like, great. I like your math. I like that. That's that's good. That's good logic there. Well. Uh, you can make numbers do anything you want. You know, everybody knows that. But, you, know, if you haven't figured that out yet. You, you, you can't figure. So, 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 so I don't even. I, I don't even have to mention it. Then now you know that Kevin's a fisherman as well. If uh, he knows how to fudge numbers like that, that's, uh, that's a pretty good way to look at it. There. So, no, that's that's great. Glad you're doing well after that. And, and uh, it's a reminder too that uh, no matter. No matter what your circumstances are, if there's a way you can get into the woods, it's worth pursuing that. And um, mm. I got to think that that's probably been part of the healing process for you as well. Um, you know, just having that drive to get back out into the woods and enjoying what you were made to do. So I think that's uh, I think that's great. It's a good testimony there to to perseverance and everything else. Well, another thing I want to I want to put in here to kind of paint the picture here of, of, of Kevin's background a little bit is he is from Kentucky and uh, Kentucky is, I think it's one of the more underrated States in our country. Um, Of course, everybody knows about Kentucky, but there's a lot of unique history there in Kentucky, especially around uh, Western expansion of our country. And um, some of those stories are, are happy stories. And some of those stories are pretty, dark stories and it's hard to know what the right answer was as you look back at history you know and and uh certainly um some some things that that i'm sure uh we look at them we wish we could handle differently or do over um but it is still yet a part of our history as a country and um it's uh it's it's just really fascinating when you start looking into what all um, went on in Kentucky, you know, we kind of, from a hunting industry standpoint, we kind of got a reminder of that in the last, uh, I don't know, you probably know this better than me, Kevin, but maybe the last 10 years, when did, when did Rocky mountain elk foundation start working on reestablishing an elk herd there in Kentucky? Do you remember the date on that? I think that was in the, uh, maybe the middle nineties. Okay, so a little bit longer even than what I was thinking. Oh, yeah, because uh, I drew a, a cow elk tag 
in I think two thousand six or eight, okay. somewhere right around there. And <clears throat> the herd had grown uh, immensely uh, up to that point. I think maybe they they were drawing like several hundred tags when oh, when wow. I drew 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 that that tag. You know, it's kind of like uh, Mother Nature and anything when. Uh, uh, a, a new animal comes on on the spot, either if it's uh, invasive or natural that's been re- reintroduced. If the habitat is good for it, it seems like she kicks them into overdrive and mm. they really, really produce till they get to a certain peak and then they level out. Yeah, And I, mm. I think that's what we've done with our elk. Uh, I think the turkey in Kentucky, there's a lot of upheaval uh, right now about our turkey numbers are low or we're running out of turkeys. Well, shoot, we've averaged, and I'm not a turkey hunter. I'm just not. I, I want to go turkey hunt with a dog. That's, that's one of my, one of my <laughs> things I want to do. But, uh, you know, we average over 30,000 a year. Okay, wow. Uh, in Kentucky. So, I mean, we're not, we were up, I think, to like 37,000. And don't take these numbers to the bank, anything, but. The upper thirties and it's dropped down, but I just think it's kind of leveled off. I mean, uh, I see this with fish too. Uh, when they flooded the lakes, uh, Lake Barkley, when I was when a kid, there for about ten years, anybody could go out and just catch a limit of crappie, some big slab crappie. And then since then, uh, a lot of the structure has disappeared. The old creek channels have filled in, and it's tough now to mm. catch the big slab crappie they're still there but everybody in the world's got a fish finder and spider rigging and all that so they're depleted you know at an unbelievable rate and we've still got some good crappie uh, we've got invasive species the asian carp that have come in and they've kind of we've got commercial fishermen out there they've got a bounty on them now to subsidize them so mm. they're kind of putting they're keeping them in check now I've got sure. many tons that they, they caught here in the last year or two, but finally you've got something in mechanism. So like I said, that's what I think is, is when you introduce something, it comes in, you know, sometimes it takes over, you know, like yeah. seeing this with the wolves, the coyotes, uh, when I grew up, there was no coyotes, you know, we had lots of small game, quail mm. and rabbits. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but in the 77, the Mississippi river froze over our deer population was starting to increase uh, about that time and the coyotes come in and the first critter they wiped out was the groundhog mm. and uh, uh, I, i've been doing a little research on the groundhogs when i was young that was our varmint to hunt in the summertime mm-hmm. sure. uh, and they were just they were everywhere i mean you could go out and a lot of people took pride in how far they could shoot a groundhog you know with high power rifle speed we don't have the technology, you know, that, that, uh, today that we had back then. I mean, we just didn't, you know, today to make a, uh, you know, 1800 or 2000 yard shot on a groundhog, it would be no big deal. You know, (laughs) we had the right, right, right. Do that. But, you know, back then 600 yard shot was a long shot. Oh man. So, uh, you know, it's just like with automobiles, you know, what we had back then, you can't compare, to what we have today, but um, right. I don't know. We kind of got off track there. What we were talking about, but um, that's no, the that, in a nutshell. It's good. No, yeah, that's it's nice. It's nice to see that kind of a picture. I, I I'm glad you're talking to a guy who who uh, is so well in tune with his 
state's wildlife history. I think that I think that's yeah. important to uh, to be to care about that. And you know, uh, we Brandon's yep. that way. He he's carefully followed what's gone on in Delaware, and that's something that I've really tried to get up to speed on here in Iowa. And uh, uh, I've talked often about this book that uh, actually the guy who was on the episode uh, that aired just before this one will is uh, uh or actually two episodes before this one will um mr todd bogenschutz the upland biologist here in iowa he rep- recommended recommended this book that, that was a history of wildlife right at about you know just before settlement and uh shortly thereafter settlement here in iowa and up to modern times and you're right it it just it ebbs and flows and Sadly, things go away, but then some things mm-hmm. come back, and new yep. newcomers arrive, and they stake their claims and have their effects, and and uh, it's it's really a worthwhile study. So if you're listening to this, wherever you're from, I'd encourage you to get involved because uh, it helps you then be more informed as far as decisions go moving forward, and uh, even personal decisions that maybe you can make if you own a little slice of heaven somewhere how to best uh, care for that and, and support the wildlife that we have now. So I, I think that's well on track with what we try to talk about here. So I really appreciate that. Well, you kind of got into it there a little bit. You talked about drawing a cow elk tag in Kentucky, and that's actually a, a absolute bucket list thing for me to – one of these days when I have that kind of availability in my schedule to where I could drop everything and go during that time of year – um, I'm definitely going to start putting in for that lottery tag. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a, it's pretty, pretty low odds of drawing one, uh, from what I understand, but certainly worthwhile pursuing. So that, that kind of does talk a little bit though, about your, your hunting profile. And you mentioned you don't do much, uh, turkey hunting. So, um, you know, let's, let's start at the beginning here for you, Kevin. How did you really get into hunting in the first place? Well, my dad was a hunter. You know, my some of my my one of my earliest memories of hunting with him was uh, out in the snow. He had two bird bird dogs, and and, and I and I had to think about this like two years ago, mm. uh, and it come back to me uh, bits and pieces at a time because I was oldest in a family, and my chore was to feed the dogs. I hated it. <laughs> I absolutely hated feeding the hunting dogs, but sure. I had to do that. You know, it, I just had all chores to do. And I was yeah. oldest, and it seemed like a lot fell on top of me that I had to do that that my brother and sister didn't have to do. Oh, but yeah. I had to feed the dogs. You know, yep. and, and I don't I don't regret any of that now. But uh, I can remember going to hunting with him. He was bird hunting quail, bobwhite quail, mm-hmm. uh, and it was snowing. And he had George and Mac for two pointers, and uh, we come to uh, a footbridge. Uh, it's like probably an inch and a half of snow on the ground. And he walked across it to get across the creek. It was a huge log. You know, it's probably an eight or 10 foot long that, that uh, uh, you could travel across the creek. It was like at a homestead. And, and that's pretty common around here to see a little footbridge mm. that someone might have at a homestead stuff. And uh, he went on across and said, come on. And man, I was like scared. He told me to death. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I just got down on all four like a coon, and I just cooed across. It. I just crawled across, it. but I made it. You know, I made it. But that's probably my earliest memory of going hunting. You know, with my dad, I didn't have a dog. I was probably like 
seven years old or something. Sure. Six, might have been five. Let's see, I was born in 59, and we moved here, or in Lyon County, I think in 65. So I was probably like six, seven, eight years old, somewhere mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right around there. And then uh, we went from that to, I remember he went and traded, he got out of the bird hunting uh, and then got a squirrel dog from his cousin. And I remember going and he had a German 8 millimeter Mauser and he traded it for the squirrel dog. And then we just, with squirrel hunt, he would, my dad would take the, the rifle and I would take a shotgun that shot better than a rifle. It was a full choke 20 gauge. And I didn't know really how it shot. We never, you know, wasted any shells. Patterned shotguns would do nothing. You just you bought a box of Wanda shotgun shells made in Czechoslovakia. They're yellow, <laughs> and you can see plum through them. Uh, I had a single barrel H&R, and uh, it, sh- it uh, I couldn't hit them half the time, and he'd get mad at me. But finally, one day, there was one, and it was, like, creeping up beside the tree, and he said, shoot that squirrel. And I, I shot it. And I took its head off. And then I realized then, man, this thing doesn't have a pattern. It shoots like tight. So, you know, <laughs> just things like that that you learn, you know, <laughs> growing up. Yeah. Yeah. We didn't have the resources to go out there and do, you know, we didn't, have, I didn't have any hunt magazines at the house or, you know, the, the school library had, had, you know, some magazines and things. And, and that's probably, you know, one thing that's forcing that we can do is make sure that our school systems have hunting magazines mm. and gun magazines and things, you know, in there uh, for the kids to look at. And, you know, hands on, I don't even know if anybody makes a hunting magazine. Well, there may be everything may be online. I do not know that for sure. But mm. we need to make sure that those resources are available in the community to people for kids so they can see that and uh, have that made available to them. So, like yeah. I said, I transitioned from, from, you know, going, just going hunting to being a part of it. And then I was thinking the first time I actually killed a rabbit. Well, I cannot, I cannot remember that. I can remember like the first squirrel that I killed on my own. Mm. My, my mom took me, I worked on a farm and didn't have my driver's license. And she took me one Sunday morning and dropped me off. And I killed like one or two squirrels by myself. It was August hot pickernut season. So mm. I remember that, but I don't remember the first rabbit that I killed, but I remember the first rabbit hunting trip that I went on. <laughs> and I was probably like five or six years old, and it was a, a big family, and they all got together, and we went out there, and we killed some rabbits. So I, I do remember, you know, bits and pieces yeah. of my very early, earliest hunting, and then it just kind of like fell in place when I got my driver's license. You know, that's when I got the freedom to get out and really do some things, and then yeah. got to hunt dog. Oh, yeah. and you know, so many times went out and didn't get anything. And then my friends, we would go together and it was just more of getting out, looking around and, uh, got into trapping a little bit. And man, you just learn so much when you're out in the woods, trying to figure out mm-hmm. the animal tracks, mm-hmm. figuring those out, figuring the habits yep. of those, you know, you got the rabbit over here, the fox preys on the rabbit. So, you know, you're going to try to set your trap over there, you know, in that area. So it, it just, all tied together and you know, I said, yeah. I always enjoyed being outside looking at the small game uh the deer hunting hell i never could sit still in deer stand you know 30 <laughs> minutes my candy bar sandwich and whatever i had to drink was done i was ready to get out <laughs> uh, I, just, I was just not made to be a deer hunter from a stand or a turkey mm. hunter from from that i just like you know i've got some dogs you know that's what i want to follow 
I had horses mm-hmm. for a while, and that's the, oh, that's, that's the cool. ultimate hunting. We've got horses and dogs. As a friend of mine would say, if you go hunting with Murphy, a half a day's 12 hours and a full day's 24. Get your money's worth. <laughs> that's yeah. right. That's yeah. right. That's, but, that's, you know, that's when I got older and had the resources to do things like that. Not everybody's sure. capable of doing that. But I took yeah. you know, full advantage of it. And you say that, well, the time is right. You're going to put in for help. Well, the time is now. So you, yeah, know, you get the tag right. and you figure out how to do it because yeah, man, it's tough up in Eastern Kentucky. Those hills are straight up and down, and you know, you it's 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 a young man's game to to hunt up there. It's mm, good uh, advice, unless you get you know a guide and somebody help you pack that stuff out. Because man, it's I was up there driving around. I went up the first time on my own and tried to do something, and finally had to end up recruiting some local people to help me. Mm, uh, sure. I remember one driveway is like when you pull out of it, there's there's two mirrors sitting out there showing the left side of the road and the right side. People coming around. I mean, it's like oh. there's no flat ground or nothing up there. It's just all straight up and down. There's a Alice Lloyd College up there in that area, and it was just like rough indeed. Uh, it's pretty brutal. Uh, it's it's completely different. You know, mine in the state is what I call the cool side. Kentucky, Pacific Ocean, Scouts, and Surfboards, and then the eastern part is the Atlantic Ocean side there, just rocks and whatever. I mean, mm-hmm. it's, it's daylight and dark difference in our state. In, yeah. in our state, a lot of people don't realize, you know, we're the 14th state in the nation, you know, the mm. 13 original colonies, yeah. and then we, we fell in right behind them, mm. so, you know, man has impacted... Americans have impacted Kentucky quite a bit from the very yeah. ago. You know, our 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 state landscape has changed tremendously as far as timbered. We had a big uh, iron industry here in the the uh, western part of the state where I grew up around LBL. They had the iron furnaces up there, which they came in and they they stripped all the timber out and made mm. uh, um, charcoal for the mines up there, for the for the uh, um, steel mills or iron they made pig iron in the beginning and uh they eventually that's where steel was invented uh, the bessemer process oh really the kelly the kelly bessemer process is how it's put in the book Uh, initially it was bessemer some uh, english spies stole it took it back to england but then then kelly was the local guy and he finally fought for it and then the process now where they would take basically oxygen and blow it into uh, the pig iron to burn out the impurities, huh. the carbon and yeah. things of that, that nature in there. So that was actually invented here. It's in, pretty interesting. Uh, far yeah. western Kentucky that uh, people don't don't realize. But yeah, I would have never guessed. Our that. landscape is, has changed immensely because we've been inhabited for, you know, from 1792, you know, when we became a state. Right. Yeah, I mean, that uh, for a while there, Kentucky was kind of the wild west, you know, just, uh, um, Mm -hmm. that was going on there kind of, it was, I guess, technically sort of involved a little bit with the American revolution, even though it was kind of like a war within a war that was going on there, kind of in the Boonesboro area with, uh, um, some of the, the, that Boonesboro settlement was kind of under siege and, uh, I believe it was, they were fighting with the Shawnee, right? when that when that I happened. think so yeah 
and Shawnee were kind of, they had made some kind of a deal with, um, uh, Great Britain and they were kind of fighting as agents for them. And so it technically classifies as, I want to say it was the farthest West battle of the American revolution is technically how they classify that. But it was really, you know, kind of a, <laughs> the American revolution was kind of a side issue. <laughs> if, if you could say that at that time uh, for, for what was going on there, it's just, just really a, an incredibly historic place there in Kentucky and, and even learning some really, <laughs> some really interesting new things tonight in this conversation. So that's that's really cool. Now, besides elk, you just mentioned that you don't you don't do much deer hunting. Um, do you do any other like western big game hunting, or have you pretty much settled in uh, on on uh, small game? Uh, you know, I'm open for like anything. Uh, I'm going to be putting in for a, an antelope permit. Mm. To, uh, Wyoming, uh, um, this year is my plans. Uh, sure. uh, I used to most load hunt down on St. Vincent's Island, uh, which is in the handle of Florida in Appalachian mm. uh, Bay. Okay. I've probably been down there on three or four hunts and you could, uh, I know the first trip I went down there is in the early eighties. I'm thinking probably, mm, 81, eight, yeah, probably 81. I went to Apalachicola for a hundred dollars, uh, like five or six, maybe seven of us got in a Ford Econoline van and went on a three day hunting trip on St. Vincent's Island that paid for our license was $16 and 50 cents. Hmm. You can kill a turkey, uh, one deer and unlimited hogs and, uh, raccoons. St. <laughs> Vincent, uh, uh, is about 17,000 acres. Uh, it was originally owned by, uh, some rich people that like to hunt. And then the nature conservancy, uh, got money together and bought it. And then they turned <sighs> it into a national, uh, wildlife refuge. Oh, nice. And they, they, they allow hunting on it. And it's got a uh, sandbar deer from India. The big yeah. bags. So they're on there, and I put in several times for those, but never got drawn. I saw them uh, numerous times when I was on the island hunting. Um, so, you know, big game's not out of my uh, um, uh, category to hunt. Uh, I prefer to hunt small game because I get to shoot a lot, usually dogs involved most of the time, or some other type of animal, horse, maybe a, uh, a golden eagle or whatever. So, um, oh, yeah. I put in for different hunts. As far as going on the out west elk, uh, elk hunt or something, that doesn't really, you know, I just seem to go out and shoot a jackrabbit or I'm, I'm going to go mountain lion hunting uh, in March. So. Oh, man. Oh, nice. That is awesome. So, uh, so I look forward to that. It's going to be a dry ground uh, in the desert sand, hunt, sure. which is, you know, takes a special guy and dog to do that. Oh, yeah. And so, um, I checked around, pinged around, and I think the guy that, that I got, well, I know he's really good, so I'm looking forward to do that. Uh, probably I'm looking to maybe go to Norway. Oh, uh, oh and, uh, really? Hunt moose with a dog, throw <laughs> deer with a dog, uh, mountain hare with a dog, uh, Capricelli with a dog, and maybe go back and then lynx hunt. 
with a dollar. Wow. In, in Norway. So that's kind of on my bucket list today. Man, that um, that sounds like a dream trip right there. Wow. Yeah, that beautiful place too. The more I see of Norway, the more interested I get in, in going there. I actually have quite a bit of uh quite a bit of my ancestry comes from that region of the world way back when. And uh yeah, there's mm-hmm. there's a lot of cool things to like about Norway. That's <laughs> you just added to that list. I don't, I'm starting to wonder about your DNA. It seems to be like everywhere. <laughs> it is. I am, I am. I am all over the place, and uh, I'll have to tell you a little bit more after we're we're done with the the call here, Kevin, about the situation. I, I'm uh, my wife and I. We just moved into a a family farmhouse here, and uh, uh, as as long as everything uh, keeps keeps going well, we should be the ones to uh, carry it over the century farm. Mark nice. for for our family, but uh, yeah, I love family history stuff. That's it's uh, it's fascinating to look into. But no, that's cool to hear your kind of your hunting resume there. Uh, hunted a little bit of everywhere. Uh, so let's let's start diving in here to uh, small game and on the the topic of hunting everywhere. Where all have you hunted uh, squirrels and rabbits here in uh, the United States or possibly overseas? <laughs> Um, let's see, you know, um, Kentucky, Tennessee, uh, for cottontails and swamp rabbits. You know, we do have those mm. in the Mississippi river drainage. Sure. It's a, a different a critter. And then, uh, uh, Michigan snowshoe hare uh, on Drummond Island. Uh, I go there, I've been there probably like three or four times. I've been in, uh, uh so a couple of the, the Manistee national forest. And another Ottawa National Forest. I've, killed, mm. I've just slip hunted out grouse hunting, killed snowshoe uh, when I was up there. And then I've hunted with dogs in Maine, uh, um, snowshoe hunted up there. Uh, got a real quick story. We were out one day and um, uh, I had an outfitter. I didn't have my dogs up there, but I heard mm. an outfitter that had had beagles and, and we would kill mm-hmm. a few rabbits there. And then we had a train wreck and. Uh, is beagles got after a moose. Oh, uh, no. Uh, they, they ran, it was a big cow moose, and they ran her by us. Well, I was able to capture three of the beagles. I did like a, 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 a cackle and got three of them, and the, the fourth one I couldn't get it. So, you know, this little beagle takes this moose off, <laughs> and uh, we go back to the truck and put his dogs up, and we're all standing around talking, just kind of, Taking a break, we would hunt it like half the day. Sure. And um, I, I don't know how much time, but we could faintly hear the dog coming back, just, just you know, just in the distance. And then the next thing we know, we look up and here comes the moose. Oh. No. And then the little beagle, the little beagle behind it, you know, it barks so much and runs so far, it can't <laughs> it so barely, barely makes it count. But this moose is scared to death of this <laughs> little bitty beagle dog. And so it comes by there, but then it's wore out. And so, so I pick the beagle up and get it and put it in, uh, start carrying it in the box. Well, immediately when I got a hold of the dog, the, the cow moose turned around and become in, instead of a, a, a defensive mode, run away from the oh. dog when it was up, it became in an offensive mode. Oh, no, oh, that is funny. Up. <laughs> And got down, and, and she didn't know that I had about an inch and a half thick moose steak the night before. The first moose that I had ever eaten in my life. It was just yeah, unbelievably good. That. 
But, uh, you know, I was amazed that, you know, that she was scared of that beagle. Of course, you know, instilled from the wolf, you know, the wolf yeah. stuff. Yeah. Uh, but that was an inherited, you know, thing to run from them. But once it was up, she was not scared of, of the hunters, you know. That is interesting. Wow. So, you know, I, I got to see that firsthand. And that's experiences with dogs. And animals that, you know, you don't get from a book or, yeah. you know, it, real life experiences. You know, yeah. To be able to put all that stuff together, to see that, be up close and take notice of that. So that's, you know, that's what I enjoy about hunting yeah. with dogs and being out different places. You know, that was out of my territory to do that. You know, I'd never been around a moose before. So, well, Kevin, I was, I was going to ask you too, you know, just reference to the dog side of things i know you said that you you know you started getting dogs when you were younger maybe teenagers what did you just did you just kind of teach yourself a little bit did you have someone that kind of helped teach you with you know the the, the running of the dogs and that type of stuff or how did that go for you you know i still learn stuff from time to time from people yeah uh, sometimes i know this stuff in my head i just don't put it all together and the, and then sometimes i hear somebody else say it and all of a sudden it makes sense when mm. the whole time I've seen it my whole life, but I just couldn't put it together. Mm. Um, yeah, I'm pretty much self-taught. You know, some people show nice. me how to do stuff. I'm not no super duper dog training type guy that my dogs do all these tricks and stuff. I'm just a guy with a dog that goes out and goes hunting. You know, yeah. If they'll come to me and, and halfway load in the truck and stuff. That's all I want. I, yeah. Like I said, I'm not a, I'm not a dog whisper type guy. I don't have mm -hmm. any kind of special, handle on a dog or whatever i just i just like to use dogs they're a tool to me you know and hunting i got my bird dog on the couch right now there's not any birds in kentucky anymore mm -hmm. but um i just i just like the companionship with the dog and the yeah. out there hunting you know and if the dog catches something that makes me you know i'd rather my dog catch one squirrel than shoot 10 or uh, none of my dogs are really out uh out and out caught a rabbit for they caught a bunch of cripples you know but as far yeah. as just running a rabbit down sure i haven't done that that i know of just something inherently in my dna that mm -hmm. you know, i've got a brother there's nothing about hunting whatsoever it's just everything just clicked with me and that's just kind of my passion that, uh, yeah to go yeah. out and uh, i love hunting here in kentucky but you know while i'm still able i want to go out and see as much as the world the united states you know overseas i was down in uh, nicaragua uh let's see that was 2018 i guess and we were white wing dove hunting down there okay and yeah we did some waterfowl hunting and i wanted to, to kill a squirrel a variegated squirrel mm. uh but we couldn't travel it was it was holy week and in holy week you can't travel all the weekend with guns we oh, couldn't okay. do that but um we uh, the first day we went dove hunting there we had a we had a big pile of dove, doves, and as soon as the first shotgun went off, the local villagers started piling in because they mm. got a limited amount of protein. You know, they live mainly on rice, beans, and plantains down there. That's mm. their diet. Yeah. So they Man. knew that there would be some uh, some dove meat uh, over there. And um, we had them piled up and taking some pictures. And I noticed there was this, this one dog. He would come over, and he would pick up a shotgun hole and take it back over there to this person and drop mm. it off. And I got to thinking that was probably like some lurcher type dog. You know, I'm pretty sure they probably trained him to do that, to steal huh. things. Yeah. I yeah. I don't right. know that. I don't know that for sure, but I saw that. Yeah. But 
man, I thought about it and I asked the people, I said, man, what would it take to bring a dog back from Nicaragua? And of course, you had to jump through all these hoops, I think, but I just thought that would be interesting because I pay attention to dogs. When I was in uh, Mongolia, they would have dogs at, at the homestead there, but those darn things, all they would do pretty much is uh, bark all night and sleep all day. And the ones that couldn't do that, they made boots out of because you could get some dog fur flying boots at the, uh, uh, oh, uh, at the places in uh, in town. I started, my buddy, he just tried to get me a pair. I said, man, I don't know if I can, I can wear a pair of boots with some dog fur on them or not. But, yeah, right. Yeah, my goodness. Yeah. Yep. But their dogs, like I said, they had them at the homesteads over there. Because wolves are a big threat over there. They came into mm-hmm. the valley that we were in, and they killed 150 sheep and goats oh, one night. Wow. Now, we didn't see that, but they told us about it. Yeah. They thought it was a she-wolf and teaching her cubs how to kill. Uh, wow. They would have scarecrows and uh, oh, uh, rock, uh, like rock scarecrows. I've got the mm-hmm. term of it there. Stood up trying to scare the wolves away, and you know they were a big, big threat to them over yeah, there yeah. to their, you know, their source of income. Sure. Yeah. But, yeah. I'm a dog guy. I like to see dogs. I went on a waterfowl hunt about two, three weeks ago, and man, the highlight of my day was watching this dog work. He was just, man, he was just unbelievable. Yeah. Uh, you know, he made probably like thirty something retrieves and never stopped. He tried to pick <clears> up two ducks at one time. And that just, you know, like so when I see something like that, that just, you know, I don't have to be yeah. killing anything or pulling the yeah. or whatever. I just like to see something that's made, you know, that man is made to help him uh, hunt uh, and assist, you know, and, and be, uh, you know, part of the part of the hunt. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I think, you know, a, a, a facet about why people enjoy, you know, whether it's rabbit hunting, waterfowl hunting, whatever, you know, is a lot of that community and that, that companionship with a dog. And as someone who myself, I know Kent has some dogs, you know, I grew up, I mean, I had, you know, we had labs and retrievers, but not really hunting dogs, but when we would go on guided hunts or different things, you know, to, to see the dogs work, I mean, it's for any, you know, any first gen hunter out there, I mean, boy, even if you, even if you don't maybe have the resources or the ability to have a dog or whatever, if you can find yourself an opportunity to, to go on a hunt with a dog, whether it's, you know, a rabbit hunt, a waterfowl hunt, I mean, it, it really is a game changer. I mean, it really, it, like you said, it just to watch a, to watch a trained dog work is mm. one of the most enjoyable things to witness and, you know, really really is i think something that every hunter at some point should be able to experience you know yeah I, that's that's oh, well yeah. said yeah yeah definitely um, another thing i've been on about four bear hunts too i've got about mm. that okay so i've been uh north carolina uh west virginia and a couple times up in maine so uh, that's one thing that uh, and i just recently went on the bear hunt in west virginia um, but, um, you know, and the, the guys that I fell in with, uh, this last time, uh, got to spend some one-on-one time with, with, it was like two leaders of the, of the bear hunting pack and, uh, mm. asked them about the dogs and we took them out and I told them to says, you know, I just had a knee replacement. I can't get in here real, you know, hot and heavy or whatever there. So well, we're just going to walk around this cut. So we yeah. got out and he had a pack of, uh, I think we had like six, maybe eight hounds with us. 
And those, okay. those were the best handling hounds I have ever seen in my entire life. I mean, they, they just stayed, you know, within 50, 100 yards of us the whole time. Mm-hmm. Just kind of work like a bird dog, you know, just that close like a Brittany. And I was really amazed. And then finally the guy said, I'm going to, you just sit here and keep these two young dogs. Cause I can't, you know, I, I just, if, if you hear us get after something, you let them loose. But yeah. I, I'm going to take the old dog in there. And that's a lot of hunting too. People don't realize it. It's a lot of time and effort. And man, it's just, you got a young dog. You really got to put some time in it oh, to get yeah. it going. And sometimes you have some train wrecks and that's just part of it. Yeah. But, uh, you know, we've got the GPS, the Garmin collars and a few other brands out there. And, and I wouldn't have a pack of Beagles if there wasn't, you know, if I didn't have a, a an e-collar, I just, yeah. you know, I'm just not capable anymore of, of, uh, running them down and, uh, what it takes to do that. But, and the e-collars make it more like, you know, the beagle hound is like the third dumbest dog. He would like to be the second. He just don't know how to get there. But, you know, <laughs> yeah, things, right. you know it's, it's no big deal. You know, if they get off on some off game or something, you just, you know, if you got your tone broke dog right there, you just hit the tone on them and, or the vibrator. And if they don't come in, you just give them a little juice and boom, it's, you know, they're back in the pocket. If they're, right. you know, mm-hmm. if they're got any sense at all, if they're not, you need to, you know, get shit of them and go on. But uh, it's just, yeah. The dynamics of hunting, as far as, you know, compared to when I was a kid, I probably got my first beagle hounds. I think I was in college. Of course, I went to college for 10 years, so I could own a lot of dogs. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I had a, had a pair, and they were okay. And then I didn't really get into beagles. And I, and I found some pictures the other day. I was looking, and it was a picture from about 1991 or 92. And I was with a friend of mine. He had some beagles. We killed like eight or ten. But when I got ready to retire, uh, I retired in 2011. And I got, a, I think, a, a couple of beagles about a year before uh, before that. And then uh, I stayed off a year. And then in 2012, retired 2011. And then by the, by the fall of 2012, I was back working. And I met a young guy, and he had beagles. And I've been hunting with him for this would be like the tenth year that I've nice. hunted with him. Okay. Um, so we made uh, we've been to, to Michigan. I think I've been every year except for one year uh, in March. It's still rabbit season in Michigan, and we go up oh, there. He's wow. got folk and made some friends with uh, a lot of the community around there. We hunt um, um, private ground. You know, we may have to bring some kind of goodies. Of course, I'm always bringing like barbecue sauce and, of course, moonshine from Kentucky. And uh, <laughs> one boy, he brings he brings walleye flakes, so you can get you know any anywhere on walleye flakes. And I bring sorghum molasses with those. So mm-hmm. you know, some people they don't drink, so they won't you know they don't want any of the moonshine. And there's some people want everything that we've got. So sure. we, we've got we have a big time up there, and, and that's what it takes sometimes. You know, there's one place we hunted. It's probably took us two or three years to get permission to hunt on it but uh, you know we did and those people become friends with us and you know you build a lot of friendship when you're small game hunting it's a little bit different than they coming in and you know to me deer hunting so technical anymore you know you yeah. gotta have a stand and trail cameras and people got feeders and all this gear and stuff man you know a small game hunt all you need really is a shotgun or a 22 rifle Right. Yeah. And a lot. Yeah. Right. That's all you need. Some ammo, and you can go out there and go hunt. You know, if you want to get a game vest and get some dogs, and 
and get some other equipment you can, but to get into it, all you need is a gun or you don't even need that. You just need a buddy. Mm-hmm. That's a small game hunter. Cause most likely he's got an extra gun for you. So right, you know, yeah, it's yeah, really a small yeah. game. You don't need anything but the desire. And a lot yeah. Yeah. Right. That's a, that's a great, that's a great transition point right there. I think that gets to kind of the heart of our conversation tonight, which is, it's such a good thing for if you're listening in, you're a first-gen hunter, maybe you haven't even gotten out yet. Maybe you're still trying to figure out if this is for you. A great place to start. In fact, a lot of veteran hunters, I think uh, even Brandon has stated this before, that small game is kind of where a lot of people get their bearings as far as uh, hunting goes and get their feet under mm-hmm. them a little bit and get to experience that. And a lot of what Kevin just said, it's a nice ease of access into uh, the hunting culture, the hunting lifestyle, you know, yep. is, is getting out there and learning the woods from that standpoint. So and I agree too, you know, I, deer hunting is my most favorite thing to do, but you're exactly right. There's, it's become very technical and, and uh, you know, you, you leave a bigger footprint too, I think in the woods when you're deer hunting in the sense that, uh, you do have to have all that gear, you know, running all those cameras and, and, uh, it's not, you know, the, the nice thing about small game hunting, yeah, you're, you're making quite a commotion while you're hunting as you're working through the woods and everything, but then you're out, you know, whereas yeah, when I set up my stands and stuff, those things stay or trail cameras stay and, you know, you kind of leave your scent hanging there and animals have the opportunity to kind of learn to live with you being around and uh um it's not it's not that short term disturbance it's more of a long term thing so i'm not saying it's bad but it certainly is something to to think about well, let's go right there kevin let's hop into rabbits here as uh as we get to this part of the show and uh you know one thing i want to start with right here and uh i'm i'm starting with it because it would just seem kind of weird to be an afterthought after we're, <laughs> we're talking through this but rabbit diseases you know a common myth or maybe it's a fact I guess I haven't studied it well enough. I've looked into it a little bit, but not a ton. You know, people will be like, oh, you don't want to, you don't want to hunt rabbits or squirrels until you've had a couple of good hard frost to kill all the, uh, uh, heebie-jeebies that are crawling around on them and, uh, you know, that are going to make you sick. It, do you, do you buy into that at all? Like from your, your vast experience, I mean, and that's really why I wanted to know where all you hunted. So people listening in know that this is not information that's just coming from the context of hunting in Western Kentucky. You've hunted small game all over the place, but, uh, do do you, do you buy into that at all? That, that from a human health standpoint, is it better to wait to hunt rabbits or we could even say squirrels here after the cold weather settles in or is that just a bunch of bunk? Oh, uh, I, I would hunt them year round if they would let us, you know, when pretty much over Missouri, you, you can hunt squirrel pretty much year round over there. Uh, I think the squirrel season, maybe it comes in like the week before Memorial day. Okay. Oh, wow. And <laughs> it runs all the way to the end of February. Wow. Uh, I think maybe it might be out for a week for deer season over there. And uh, a friend of mine, and back in the, the 90s, I met him and would travel over and hunt in the Mark Twain National Forest. Sure. And uh, 
the squirrels killed in the summertime are just as good as the ones in the wintertime. Uh, you know, there is old wise tales. There's the, the, if I pronounce it right, the, the wolves, you know, the, those grubs from the bot fly, I think is what they are. Okay. That, yeah. Uh, that vary into, uh, and, you know, you might see some of those. I don't know if I, I think I've seen them in a squirrel, uh, a rabbit a few times. I know that you can kill a rabbit. And w- once it goes uh, cold, that, uh, that a larva will uh he'll he'll dig out of that rabbit and uh, uh <coughs> leave it and uh you know you just cut that place out of the meat if you run into that but sure. yeah to me there's not you know there's the uh tumularia rabbit fever if i, yeah. I pronounce that right yeah. you know that's out here my grandfather he always told me he said don't ever shoot uh shoot a setting rabbit he said, it's probably sick uh, I do know that I ha- I've got a friend, a medical doctor, and I asked him. He's from West Virginia. I said, uh, "Have you ever have you ever treated anybody with with tumularia?" And he says, "You know, when I was a, a med student and doing my internship, says I was working in a hospital, and they give me this guy that had been to the to the emergency room like two or three times for uh, I think he was running fever and chills and stuff, and then they I think he he was there two times, and they sent him home." They couldn't find anything wrong with him. And he finally come back in there and he says, you know, if I had been a medical student, I wouldn't have caught it, but I was doing things by the book. And right. I was thinking about my medical training in there. And I asked him, said, have you been around any rabbits? And the guy says, you know, I was mowing the yard and uh, uh, I saw this rabbit sitting in the yard. So I went in the house and got my pistol and he was still sitting out there and I shot him. Mm. I went over and picked him up, and then I got to thinking, says, man, that rabbit should have ran off. So he was there the whole time I was mowing. He huh. never moved, and I went in the house and got it. He said, I threw it in the in the, the bushes over. I didn't skin it, but he had contact, and he got tumularia from uh, wow. picking that rabbit up. Oh, my goodness. So, you know, wow. I always try to wear gloves, you know, not have I always worn gloves. No, uh, but I try to, yes, you know, yeah. with that, you know. If I do kill something that doesn't look right or something, you know, I don't take a chance on it. I will toss it. But, you know, most of the things, you know, I, I don't see it that often. You know, there might be ticks on it. We killed some swamp rabbits the other day, and, man, there was one just covered up in blaze. Mm. Unbelievable. So, you know, we all know that's where the bubonic plague come through. So, yeah. you know, hunters hunters are exposed to a lot of things that, that people don't see and whatever. And you just got to use good judgment. and. Mm-hmm. It, it helps build our immunity to be around stuff like that. In my opinion, of course, you know, yeah. if you've got a dog as a pet, and especially if you've got one in the house and stuff, you're exposed to a certain amount of, of, of you know, parasites and oh, yeah. the heebie-jeebies, as you like to say, <laughs> that other people aren't. And <clears throat> we're a very resilient organism, animal. Yeah. I mean, if you're strong and healthy and, you know, do certain sanitary things and stuff, you know, don't live in squalor or whatever, you're going to be be okay. But, you know, we can all, you know, get numerous things from wildlife. And unfortunately, that happens to people sometimes. Yep. But, you know, I've traveled the world and see things, the way people live and stuff. And, you know, uh, it's just, of course, I'm a wastewater guy. I've been around that industry. So, okay. you know, a lot of things that bother some people just don't bother me, you know. Mm-hmm, right, there's there's parasites out there you know you see take worms and rabbits when you when you skin those uh different things um so you just you know you just use judgment and go on yeah go on about it 
Okay, all you fellow first-gen hunters, veteran hunters, and anyone else with a great big fat hunting dream that you have not yet tapped into, I'm talking directly to you right now, and this is a personal testimony. You're hearing it straight from the horse's mouth, and that is because I am a customer of good old Alex Gruen over at East to West Hunts, and I'm going to tell you right now, there is not a better hunt planning service in the business here is how thorough alex is i'm just going to give you that that first person testimonial that hopefully will help seal the deal for you after i get done recording this ad i'm going to use a promo code that alex sent to me via text message to save me big bucks on a really nice hunting pack that i've had my eye on for months now and uh, he just kind of came up with this promo code just yesterday, got it in the mail or something. He said, you know what? I'm going to save this for you. I know you got your eye on this pack. He sent it to me. Alex has sent me workout tips. Alex has been there around the clock from all my inquiries on different pieces of gear, from sleeping bags to tents to rifle scopes. And he's got connections all over the place. So he... He knows where to send you to get you the right stuff to not only make it so that you can get out on the hunt, but you can be comfortable, get a good night's sleep, and hunt effectively each and every day of your trip, truly maximizing the dollars spent to get there. And I think that's probably the biggest value in all of this. Alex has so much experience hunting all over North America that when he sends you somewhere, you're not going there blind. No, he's going to send you to specific places within these units that he, either through his vast network with guides and outfitters or from his own personal experience, his own waypoints that he's saved on his hunting maps that he'll share with you so that you have the best chance at being successful. So head over to www.alexgruen.com and do your hunt planning with Alex through East to West Hunts. Be sure, though, when you go through and you start checking out all the options, I should say he's got multiple options there, depending on what your the right price point is for you. Be sure you enter the First Gen Hunter Podcast listener code, FIRSTGEN10, at checkout. When you enter that in, you'll get 10% off of any service you purchase through Alex. Again, that's www alexgruen.com use the promo code firstgen the number 10 at checkout save yourself 10 percent and get going on that hunt that you've been putting on the back burner for all these years yeah well it's good i'm glad glad i asked you that because i always always wonder that when i'm I, i'm handling an animal like that and i've definitely heard some uh tularemia i think is what you were talking about earlier i've definitely heard some horror stories on that as well where where uh yeah people get that just from the slightest encounter with them kind of like that guy was talking about in your in your story and uh yeah it's it's good to keep an eye on but i also like what you said too about helps us uh, you know, there's some things that are just going to infect us and they're going to hurt us for sure. But, but, uh, mm-hmm. you know, being exposed to some of this stuff does, I think, uh, do us some, some favors as well. So, yeah, I like, I like that theory a lot. You know, I, I, this year I had an interesting thing happen. I, I shot a pheasant back in November and when I went to, uh, I was going to originally, 
uh, try and pluck it, I think, if I remember correctly. Um, but uh, as I was looking at it, this thing was covered in lice, bird lice. Oh, you know, yeah. I've shot a lot of pheasants, and I have never come across one with bird lice, and that thing was mm. was covered in it. So I still plan to eat it. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, that was that was uh, that was a new thing, you know, and a good mm-hmm. reminder of what you're talking about there. For sure, and I've definitely seen guys get eaten up by fleas when they throw an old rabbit in the in the uh, game pouch on the back of their vest. <laughs> yeah, right. Best thing just to hang it up, you know, in a tree for you know a bush or branch. You got to watch for, for the hogs. They will oh, come in there yeah. and get them. But uh, you hang it up, and once the body heat is over, then those fleas they disappear. So sure, yeah, that That's... is one thing that uh, you know I have learned to do. That, it's flea infested, whatever. I just hang it up somewhere and then try to come back, you know, circle back, back to it instead of packing it around. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, That's good. That's a good, that's a good little tip there. So, yeah, it is. So you, you, you've established the fact that you like to hunt rabbits pretty much whenever you can hunt them, but is there a best time of year in your opinion for hunting rabbits? Well, you know, in the beginning of the season, because they're the most plentiful, you know, at that hmm. time. Yeah, that's so, true. Yeah. You know, to me, you know, we have deer season here in Kentucky, so we have to kind of like let that get out of the way. Uh, really, the first weekend is the only weekend small game season is shut down. But <clears throat> unless we uh, have control of a piece of property or whatever, then we sure. usually wait for deer season to get completely over with. And that's usually yeah. right around the 1st of December. So that's when I start my, you know, rabbit hunting now. We'll okay. go to uh, up north in September and start up there uh, hare hunting. Okay. But, um, you know, the time to go rabbit hunting is any time that you can. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that, that's like the when to go. Um, you know, towards the end of the season right now, all the dumb critters have been killed or eaten. <laughs> <laughs> Only the, the super smart are left. Out there. Yeah, right. They, they are difficult. I mean, I... I I watch them and see stuff that's just truly amazing. Um, we were out the other day hunting, and there was a fescue field mowed, and there was a uh, just a small brush pile that would fit in the back of a pickup truck. Okay. And one of my friends, he was on it, jumping up and down, and finally a rabbit come out of there, and the dogs running just a little bit, and we killed it. And he, and he still was jumping on it. And he was getting ready to get off of it. I thought, man, there ain't, there's got, I can't believe that a rabbit stayed in there like it was on the first one there. But there was a second rabbit in there. And he said that he was getting ready to step off. And he looked down at his foot where he was going to step. And he could see the rabbit in the brush pile mm. that he was on top of. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, that, that rabbit stayed in there all that. And yeah. I was down the bottom swamp rabbit hunting the other day. And, uh, Ran one, he ran back to me. I, he was so close, I couldn't see his head to shoot him, so I didn't want to just obliterate him. So right. I was waiting for a headshot, and he ran off. I couldn't, I couldn't get a shot at him. So I made a big circle, and I thought, man, there, there's got to be a swamp rabbit in that spot. It just looks too good. And I needed to take a knee break, and I was going to sit down on this log. And out of the corner of my eye, and I've got seven beagle hounds with me. <laughs> out of the corner of my eye, I see something that flashed by. I said, man, that was a swamp rabbit right there. I mean, it's like, it got up like, you know, four feet from me from this log. <laughs> and I just saw it out of the corner of my eye. So I, I got the dogs over there. And sure enough, 
they got on his track, run across a black type road over into a swamp, 326 yards. I think I'm a oh, GPS man. and and they lost him over there somewhere or another, but it's just amazing the patience that they have, you know, right yeah. now, as far as letting a predator get right on top of them. And I guess, you know, they've seen some that some of their buddies is that bolt out and get caught by a hawk or a bobcat, you know, an otter, feral cats, man, the feral cat yeah. community needs to totally disappear. We do not need any feral cats whatsoever. Yeah. And mm, there's a lot yeah. of communities around that people support and they don't, they don't understand that, man, that that's the worst thing in the world to do is have a bunch of feral cats, even though they're mm-hmm. neutered, fix whatever, you know, we, there is no place for them to be out there in mm. mother nature's kingdom. Oh, yeah, but sure. But the rabbits that we've got now, I mean, I've seen like I've seen rabbits. We jumped another one the other day and uh, um, it ran across the field into the brush pile. And I got run over his first thing. I probably haven't done that in like in three years since my knees been going bad. And mm-hmm. I ran over there, got to it, went a run. It was like a, I don't know, <laughs> a fast <laughs> walk, I guess. But I was expecting the rabbit to run out to the end of the brush pile, and that's where I set up at. Well, the dogs come over there, they hit the brush pile, and they and they ran right through it, and he went to a fence row with just some trees on it. Well, the fence row rabbits are one of the toughest kind to have out there. They're super smart. They, they're just cagey. And so I went over there and just camped out on the fence row because I figured he would come back. Sure. So I think what they do, they let the dogs overrun them, and then they'll just run back through the pack of the dogs. Okay. You know, they yeah. Just, they, they've got that savvy about them. Well, that's this one. He come running back up the fence row with the dogs behind him there, and I got him. But I knew I was pretty sure that's what he was going to do. Being in that fence row, like I said, we have trouble killing them in fence rows. Are pretty pretty crafty. Sure. So you know that, that's just from years of experience out. Yeah. Like, you know, early in the season you got more rabbits. Towards the end of the season you got rabbits that are cagey. You're going to have to go far. If you're not bleeding, you're not rabbit hunting. <laughs> yeah, not right. Be, you yeah. Know, they're going to be in their briars. You know, you might catch a hillside where it's been real cold and uh, there's some grass and cover. They might be out there sunning, but majority of them, they're going to be in the thick, real thick cover. Uh, um, another thing you can do is, is take like it with you, kind of beat on bushes and stuff, brush sure. piles, and that just kind of extends your reach for, you know, you're covering a, let's say a three foot wide path. And then if you've got a stick, you can do another, you know, four foot. So you got a seven foot swipe of going through places there. Just kind of take your time, you know, as you go set up, you know, don't march like you're going to, you know, to a food line somewhere to get in line, just kind of take your time, make them nervous. But uh, I mean, that's what I see about rabbit hunting, you know, this time of the year versus beginning of the season, you know, like I said, you've got young rabbits. They're going to be easier to handle than the old mature rabbits that have sure. been through a season of, of predators and sure. hunters. Yeah, that's that's great advice. And, um, you know, you're touching on a lot of things here that I was going to ask, which is great. Uh, you know, a little bit on as far as habitat, those briars and, and, and brush piles. And, you know, the only rabbits that I've really ever, you know uh, – hunted before last year were they were you know kind of like i think you mentioned this when you were grouse hunting you shot a you shot a, a snowshoe or something like that um that was kind of how all my cottontail 
rabbit hunting had been was I'd be pheasant hunting and then one would dart out and you'd take a shot. Mm, yeah. But, um, last year I decided to put on the old snowshoes myself and uh, go trudging around some uh, uh, brush piles on some public ground. You could see tracks everywhere. I mean, and when I say everywhere, you could see them. You could just see tons of tracks. And I never yeah. saw a single rabbit. And it was, you know, in the February time frame, you know, basically now. And uh, that was true. They were not, they were not there to be seen. And I, it's consistent with what, what you just mentioned as far as they, they get it figured out how to stick around. And uh, they're, they're going to need some pressure. So that, that brings me to another question then. So as Brandon mentioned, I do have some uh, hunting dogs. Mine are bird dogs. I got a Brittany and a half Brittany, half poodle. And uh, they're both great with pheasants and quail. But uh, is that your dog or your wife's dog? Uh, <laughs> you know, she's she likes the she likes the half Brittany, half <laughs> half poodle, and uh, the Brittany is is kind of my dog. But uh, I'll tell you what, though that that uh, that Brittany they call it a well. There's three things you can call it. You can call it a Brittany spoodle, which is what we that's what the the we rescued her we did a rescue through the american Brittany rescue association and they call her a Brittany spoodle so that's what we always call her but then i recently found out uh, when i was teaching a genetics lesson uh, to some of my students that uh, they're also known as uh, a Brittany poo or a Brittany doodle so uh, you can uh, choose whichever one you like <laughs> best but uh <laughs> she doesn't have the brains that uh my uh britney has however my britney he will mark any bird you know like he'll go run up and and hold tight on it and and wait for the flush and then he'll go and and find it after the shot but he will not retrieve a bird and uh my my britney spaniel or my my britney spoodle i just figured out this year she will retrieve birds so uh She's, uh, she's got some talents to her as well, but, but, um, would it be worthwhile, Kevin, for me to take those bird dogs and go and sick them on some brush piles? I know that there's, you know, we talked, you were talking about this earlier, kind of the field trial crowd would probably, uh, you know, spit their coffee out right now if they heard me say, suggest such a thing. Um, but I'm like you where my dogs are here to put meat on the table and not not metals on the wall and so uh would, would that be a worthwhile venture for me to bring them out or um are those rabbits going to hold so tight that a couple of bird dogs trying a new trick uh, probably aren't gonna do anything but get in the way well you know uh what do you got to lose is the number one yeah, question. That's true. I mean, you know yeah. the temper of your dogs. I mean, you know, uh, I would say that that one dog, I mean, probably got better hunting instinct than the other one. Sure. I would say that once he figured out what you were after, yeah, he would pick up on it pretty, you know, real quick. And the other one, you know, it just might not be interested in birds. You know, yeah. the rabbits may be the thing, you know, it might like chasing rabbits. Sure. So, you know, the way to do is to take them out there. You know, the only thing that, you know, you might suffer some uh, some um, uh, blowback is that when you're out bird hunting, all they want to do is chase rabbits. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah that's what 
That's yeah. What, uh, yep. So, and that's, that's you know, what I'm worried about. If you can make them differentiate, you know, by, okay, I always put a bell on them when we go bird hunting, and then I take a bell yeah. off when we go rabbit hunting. Or if you can make them, you know, realize that, hey, we're hunting birds today and rabbits. Or is it such a big deal that if they get after rabbit when you're bird hunting? I mean, yeah. I guarantee you, if Daniel Boone had a, a dog that would that would help him with his stock, free a bear, go after a bird or a rabbit, he would let his dog do all those chores. And that's <laughs> yeah, how that's dogs true. used to be. Yeah, you know, they mm. weren't made for one specific uh, chore, unless you know royalty or somebody. But a peasant, a commoner, their dog was multi-purpose to do a lots of different things. Maybe to gather stock to be a guard dog to help hunt you know yeah. to help you know track lost people whatever i mean you know that's the way we you know that's what it used to be on homesteads and stuff you had a dog that did all this stuff you just didn't have a rabbit dog you know specifically made to run rabbits they had to do other things to make their way you know for you to feed them and, and keep them yeah yeah, well, I like that a lot. I think that's a, I think that's a great point. So that that then takes us to our third group of, of rabbit hunters. So you, you got your trained rabbit dog rabbit hunter. You got your uh, your bird dog conversion, uh, like me, rabbit hunter. And then mm-hmm. you got the guy who doesn't own a dog at all. Does mm. he does he have any hope in the world of shooting rabbits? This, especially this time of year, like you mentioned, where all the dumb ones are dead. Oh, yeah. I mean, like I said, you know, he'll probably want to venture out somewhere different, somewhere it's not easy to get to. You know, if he's on okay. public ground, you know, don't pull into the, the the public parking spot that's easy and and start hunting right there because everything's been hunted to death there. You right. Know. Pull a yeah. bicycle in the back of his truck or car or whatever, pull into that parking spot. And, uh, you know, pedal down two or three miles or four miles, ditch your bicycle, chain it to a tree, put it in there, and then hunt back to the car. And then mm. pick your car up and then go pick up your bicycle, you know. Right. Yeah. You know, change your techniques up and look for, you know, cover, homesteads, um, you know, things of that nature, uh, places where people, you know, they're not going to find them out in the woods. Of course, you know, if you got snowshoe rabbits or snowshoe hare, it's going to be different. But the cottontail, it's going to be in the in the thick, really thick cover. You know, this time of year, most likely. And then, you know, snow is an indicator. You know, if there's tracks around, there's some rabbits somewhere. Now they may be in yeah. the ground. You know, you may not be able to get them out. But you know, if you don't see sign of gnawing on bushes, you mm. know, saplings, uh, their droppings, or the tracks, and they can be in the mud too. Yeah, around the little creeks and ponds and, and yeah. things like that. So I mean, I mean, I'm always constantly looking for tracks of anything, you know, yeah. bobcats, mink, coyotes, gray foxes, red foxes, squirrels, you know, whatever. Tracks just amaze me to see what's out there. And I'm constantly looking for, you know, scat. What all the predators, you know, are the coyotes been in here? Are they full of rabbit fur or whatever? But you know, you got all that. But yeah. A guy that doesn't have a, a rabbit dog, you know, he's going to have to work harder for it. He's going to have mm-hmm. to be slow, meticulous, look at those places. And, you know, he's going to have kind of like me 
you know, sitting on that lawn, you're going to have one chance, and most likely you're going to be in a compromised situation when you get that one chance. So, yeah, yeah, react to that. I mean, I, I think too, I mean, it, it, it can be a great way to introduce kids to the outdoors. I mean, my, my, my earliest hunting memory actually is, was originally going and watching my dad. I mean, I remember we, you know, we go hunting right behind our house and hedgerow behind our house and kicking up rabbits. You know, I had my BB gun and, and he, <laughs> I watched him, you know, take down some rabbits, you know, with the, with the old 20 gauge. And I mean, first game animal I ever shot was, was a rabbit, you know, kicked mm. out of a brush pile. You know, I mean, that was, that was my first experience with a game animal. I mean, I, I mean, I remember every single bit of that situation and, you know, anything you can do to engage kids more, you know, in, in situations like that, you're, you're moving. It was also, it was kind of neat too, because, you know, I still remember the, the scenario of when I, when I got it, I, you know, my dad said, Brandon, there's a rabbit right by my foot. He had already kicked in that brush pile and that rabbit was holding super tight. And then he looked down and the rabbit was right next to his foot. He's like, all right, I'm going to kick this thing out of here. Here's where it's going to run. You're going to get an opportunity. It happened exactly like he said, shot my first rabbit and I, I was hooked for the rest of my life. And, uh, you know, pretty cool to be able to have that experience with the fellowship, the walking around the fun. And like I say, you might not necessarily see as many as you would with dogs, but it still is a heck of a lot of fun. Yeah. Oh yeah. 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 You know, and the, the, the bar is not sitting very high either. Cause yes. you know, it, it, you, you just need to incorporate, you know, other things in it that you can do to learn about this. And mm-hmm. like, when you do have that opportunity is give the kid a chance, you know, I got, yes, I'll take hunters with me and there'd be some kid and I'll tell them, man, really is we're going to let the kid shoot first, you know, we're yeah. shoot and shoot and then, mm-hmm. you know, You've killed rabbits and, and squirrels, so um, I know I, I made this little rabbit hunting film up in Michigan a couple of years ago, and uh, I told the guys, you know, today we're going to let Amber, she's going to kill her after she kills her first rabbit, now we're it's going to be open house over, and nobody's shooting anything because she's one. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. I think that's a good way to do it, for sure. Yeah, so uh, we're talking about it a little bit here. Brandon's preferred uh, weapon of choice on rabbits is a BB gun. I'm just <laughs> <laughs> uh, what what caliber are you hunting? Are you using a 410, Kevin, or are you still uh, toting around a 22, or do you go all the way up to a 20 or a 12 gauge? What do you like to hunt with? You know, I'm a 20 gauge guy, like with number five shot. Okay. Mm-hmm. And I've got a pretty open choke. You know, I, I usually shoot like a improved cylinder. I think is what I've got in my gun. Sure. Uh, the swampers, you know, may go up. Uh, and you need to look at your wildlife management area. You know, if you're in a waterfowl place, you may have to use some non-toxic shot, whether it's sure. steel or bismuth. Mm-hmm. Uh, go the bigger. If you have to use steel, go bigger. You know, like threes and fours, four rabbits and squirrels uh, for the killing fire. But I'm a 20 gauge guy. I mean. Uh, cottontail rabbit, it doesn't take, you know, one number five will, will break a bone on yeah. it and put it down. And you don't want to be like, the, I'm going to have to go back and watch the series of uh, Back to the Future now because <laughs> I don't think I ever saw the third one. And I just barely can remember bits and pieces uh, of the first one. And I won't get into it, but I saw this political cartoon the other day that was like dead on. I'm talk about. <laughs> I'll have to go back and watch all that. But yeah, you don't want to be spitting out a bunch of shot, you know, of a rabbit. Right. Um, yep. So um, the 20 gauge is more than sufficient, you know, for. But if a 12 is all you got, you know, take a 12, 
you know, your shot selection, seven and halves, you know, man, that's a whole bunch of seven and halves in a 12 gauge shell. So you yeah. might want to step down and shoot, you know, fives or fours or something like that and right. not just load them up with, with shot. Yeah. So, you know, some people might like seven and halves. I, I do not. I, I like fives. It's kind of my multi-purpose shell for squirrel or or rabbits. I've just got accustomed to shooting them. Yeah. And uh, like I said, you don't have that magnitude of shot to pick out at the at the end of the day. Yeah, that's good advice. And one shot can it can you know can take a rabbit down. So mm-hmm. you know, yeah. Well, and. Yeah, I like what you said too. I mean, Kent, even you mentioned this, you know, before too. A lot of times when you have those opportunities to to shoot multiple types of game, I mean, maybe you're out, and you know, you have an opportunity at a squirrel or, or you know, or or a dove or a grouse or something, you know, depending on where you're hunting. I mean, having a versatile shot that's that's kind of a nice tip to just kind of yeah. be prepared, especially if you ever you're going to have opportunities and other things. Yeah, yeah, I like that. That's that's. That's a good way to say it. Yeah, being a being that opportunistic predator, you know, you think of so mm-hmm. many so many predator species in the wild, even ones that Kevin was just talking about when he's talking about looking at different tracks. That's yeah. what they are. They're looking for the best opportunity. Sure, they'd love to have a big old venison steak on their plate that night, but if a if a rabbit's what hops by first, or a squirrel gets caught out in between oak trees, or or uh, you know, there's a a goose or whatever. You know, mm-hmm. they're going to go for what the best opportunity is at the time. And I think there's a lot of value in hunting that way too, you know, just being yeah. on your toes, choosing, like you said, that versatile shot and, uh, you know, being, always being safe too. You know, if you're, if you're pheasant hunting and you're also going to be planning on shooting some, some rabbits that you may come across, well, you gotta, you know, make sure everybody who's hunting with you is, alert to the dangers that exist there for your dogs <laughs> when all of a sudden yeah. you're not shooting in the air anymore. So yeah, there's, there's things to consider, but definitely worth given going with that approach that, that Brandon just mentioned. I agree with that. You know, I was also going to put in there some, some food sources, but you kind of hit it there. I think too, I, I noticed this. I like to look for deer antlers. That's I, I love looking for deer antlers every year, Kevin. I don't know if you like doing that, but uh, kind of, I love deer hunting and I I like being able to get up and stretch my legs and not have to worry about my scent control and everything else. And so I like to also get out and look for deer antlers. And, um, uh, one of the things I notice when I do that is all this rabbit, uh, behavior evidence of it. You know, you talked about the droppings and the tracks, but also I noticed that a lot of like, uh, you know, suckers coming off of trees or, or, uh, maybe, uh, just some kind of, uh, uh, bushy, uh, vegetation will be all nibbled up on the, uh, outer layer of tissue there on the plant where you can just see down by the base where rabbits are really hitting that stuff. Um, is there any other like winter food source that you've, particularly keyed in on for rabbits you know the 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 bushes is what we look for when we see that fresh gnawing on them Mm -hmm. uh and then you know if you got the snow levels you'll see them at different levels yeah on that Uh, and when you see that sign you know you know you know that there's rabbits here as Mm -hmm. far as other vegetation and stuff i'm not that familiar 
you know, with what they eat, uh, mm. some briars, uh, um, uh, let's see the salt, let's see what we call it, a green briar, uh, mm. saltooth briar that we have. They chew on those some, but the bushes and stuff is the main thing. And then, like I said, just seed droppings, you know, yeah. out there. Uh, and the rabbit has, um, it's a species that can get a, a fresh, a first time drop and it'll go back and re-eat it again. You might see some really green droppings, and that's like the first time. And then a second time, it'll digest that again. And then when it shoots it out, it'll be a darker brown color. Okay. Well, some people think there might be like right. last year droppings, but most likely, unless you're out in New Mexico or somewhere, you know, most likely it's going to be those two stages. And I forgot the technical term for that, but it's a type of animal that can eat its own ways to get those nutrients out of mm. it the second yeah, time. Yeah, you know, now that you say that, I, I believe I've – I've uh, heard that term before, and I've I've used it for my dog when he uh, when he uh, starts uh, the the terrible habit of doing so out in the yard on occasion. <laughs> but I don't I don't remember the term, but I've definitely now that you say that I have definitely noticed a difference in the color of of rabbit droppings, and I never I never connected those two things. So, huh? That answers that. That's that's uh, the more you know, I guess. <laughs> Yeah, right. But uh okay, Kevin. So <clears throat> as we uh finish this this rabbit hunting uh technique up, I'm gonna put you in a scenario here. You've been given three hours to hunt, uh you don't have your dogs with you, and you gotta shoot enough bunnies to feed, not with leftovers, but just so everyone's happy feed 10 adult eaters you can pick the time of year you can pick the time of day and uh, you can pick the type of habitat to hunt what are you doing to get enough rabbits for 10 adult eaters within three hours of hunting well hell i'm gonna drive down a blacktop road with a spotlight <laughs> uh, they are nighttime critters, aren't they? Or kind of that, mm -hmm. yeah, and, yeah. And a foggy night to begin with, too. So, mm. Mm. <laughs> you know, in some places, you know, like Texas, is your round rabbit hunting? Okay. And I think I think you can night hunt in Texas. I'm not for sure. Wow. Uh, Kansas, okay. Kansas, I think is year round. Uh, I don't think there's a. I think there is a limit. In Texas, there's no limit. I think in Kansas, there is a limit. It is real, you know, year round. I mean, it's, it, you know, to, to abide by the game laws and stuff, you know, it's going to be, you know, early into the season. That's okay. where the, the yep. rabbits are most abundant. Uh, you know, I'm probably going to be, I mean, they are a, a nocturnal animal. So, you know, the time of day, it just depends. I mean, like two years ago, we were hunting a place and we had hunted there a couple of times and we got out and it's kind of like an old abandoned farmstead. There's a couple of trailers there next to a highway, some farming fields, row crop and stuff, mm -hmm. uh, abandoned barns. Uh, we put the dogs out and uh, we killed one rabbit immediately. And then we mm -hmm. went like an hour. And hunted the whole the whole piece of property, and we hadn't killed anything else. And then mm. a little front come in. Uh, it tried to rain, sleet, and snow. And oh. then after that, 
the rabbits like just popped up and we just mm. got after, you know, one rabbit after the other. Wow. Uh, okay. So, you know, I have only hunted rabbits for like 10 years, you know, religiously. Sure. Sure. Uh, so as far as the time, um, I mean, if I'm going to go out with my dogs, it's going to be after the frost is melted. Okay. Unless, you know, mm. unless, unless I'm, you know, if, when I was working, it didn't matter what the conditions were like. Right. I was going to go hunting on the weekend because I couldn't pick out. But now since, I mean, I still work, but I'm semi-retired. So, you know, I get to choose. So, sure. you know, uh, if it's snowing or something, it seems like rabbits are active, you know, during that, that period. They're okay. out. A lot of animals are out prowling around right before snow. That's a good time. Right after a first snow, you know, to go for tracking. Mm-hmm. Because you know they haven't moved around, and any track that you see is going to be fresh. Right. Probably, you know, if I'm in a rabbit rich area, if I could pick a thing, I would go after, without a dog, I would go, you know, right after the first snowfall. And that way, any track that I see, you know, I could probably track that rabbit up. You know, it might be in a hole or hollow tree or something of that nature. But um, if we got fresh snow on the ground, you know, for a first time hunter, man, that's time to be out there because you can see mm-hmm. all the other animal tracks too so yeah that would yeah. be you know that's that would probably be under ideal conditions that's when i would go is after i first know um so i could you know track the animal other yeah. than that like i said a foggy day critters are out about so i would take that you know the worst days a east wind blowing mm. they don't seem to stir stir that much um so yeah. But, uh, you know, rabbit ha- ha- habitat has changed. We don't have the small homesteads anymore. Yep. We don't have weed seed and briars. Yep. And that's what it takes for quail and rabbits. I know two places I hunted this year, I found a cubby quail on each one, and they were identical. You know, mm. as the crow flies, they were probably uh, 80 miles apart, okay. 60 miles uh at least 60 miles apart, but two identical uh, type of habitats, weed seed and, and briars and rabbits and quail were in both of them, uh, you know, sure. cover and food. So, um, you know, you look for those things. We don't have that much anymore. Like I said, uh, you know, we've got factory farming, commercial farming, which, I mean, we like our cheap milk and soybeans and corn and all that stuff. So, right, you know, mm-hmm. you know yeah. it goes with it, and you know the magnitude, uh, the labor that it takes to farm anymore. You've got to have, you know, those commercial farms to, to be able to feed us there. There's no way that a family farm can can feed uh, our consumption. Right. So yeah, you know, yeah. You're, you're... But our WMAs, you know, in Kentucky, ninety five percent of hunting land is uh, privately owned. Only five percent is WMAs. So mm. you know. You do the math and see how they get hammered, yeah. um, from the from the general public. So um, I don't know what it's like in the other states. Out where you are, um, we're pretty you know, we're pretty Florida. close to that. We're I think I think we're about three percent of uh, of Iowa's is is publicly owned, and that might even be high. I might just be remembering that in a kind of a reverse way, as as in we're like. I think ranked 48th for amount of public land available uh, here in Iowa, you know, for the reasons you just stated, you know, the, the, the yeah. ground is so valuable for growing crops, but 
But yeah, we if we want to see some of these things come back, we got to be looking at ways that we can have, try and have both. You know, yeah, a productive ag ground, but also uh, ground that supports wildlife too. So, and uh, we've talked about that with good old Todd Bogenschutz again. Um, and that, that, that's awesome that you mentioned quail there, Kevin, because the two episodes before this one will, will air, that was a topic, quail. And uh, we talked about that exact thing. And, and Brandon's mentioned before just how the hedgerow landscape in Delaware has kind of gone the same way that it's gone here in Iowa. And uh, along with losing that diversity of habitat, you lose uh, a, a great deal of the critters that called that habitat home so yeah mm-hmm. it's all all uh all a good reminder of how valuable these commodities i guess you could say that we have are and how fragile they are as well so we gotta handle with care be responsible and but also enjoy it while we got it so all right uh kevin as we uh close this one out here what is your favorite way to prepare rabbit oh you know um, probably my favorite is to um, is flay the, the back the meat the loin off okay uh, when it would and, and I just learned this a couple of years ago uh, mm. uh, instead of gutting a rabbit you can actually just uh, skin it and take uh, a thin blade knife and fillet the backbone off, and then cut the meat off the uh, off the hindquarters. So it's like two big chunks there, mm-hmm. and then the, the front legs. You know, we just just take those off and keep those all separate. But I like that um, filleted uh, loin, and then cut. If it's a pretty good sized rabbit, maybe cut each loin into like three strips, so okay. all about the same thickness. Sure. And then uh, take a little uh, uh, meat tenderizer uh, tool okay, yeah. or a, a meat cleaver and just kind of um, um, tenderize it just a little bit and mm. then uh, dip it in some flour and fry it. And then mm. I, I call it like a rabbit tender. That yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's that's that sounds great. Oh man, that sounds yeah. really good. <laughs> mm-hmm. I love rabbit. Rabbit's my favorite thing to eat, honestly. Oh wow, mm. that's cool. Yeah, yeah, that's that sounds that sounds amazing. Good old rabbit tender. I like it. That's, <laughs> that's good. All you right. see that at the supermarket near you? <laughs> that's right. <laughs> there you go. I'm I like market it. hunting back. You that's some, right. You know. That's the thing. I've been talking to some friends over in Europe, and they can market hunt over there. You know, mm. one one guy know he killed five moose this year, Holy and God. you know, um, it, you know, we've got so many deer in Kentucky. We need to do something with them. Uh, yeah, but uh, you know, there ought to be some kind of means or something that we can reduce our whitetail. And, and those dudes, and to my opinion, they have changed the landscape. Because I was talking to one of my friends the other day. I said, man, when's the last time you saw a honeysuckle patch? Mm. And we yeah, had honeysuckle right. patches, and we, that's where we used to hunt rabbits. And, man, they're just not here anymore. Mm-hmm. That, mm-hmm. and then there's a, a shrub called a coral berry. It's got little bitty red berries on yeah. it, about the size, yeah. a little bit bigger than a BB. They mm-hmm. used to be common in the woods lot under, yep. the like, the second growth. And those yep. things are just, like, gone. You don't, yeah, you don't you're right. You don't see those anymore. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But, uh, I think the white-tailed deer have really come in and changed our landscape. Uh, 
more than we realize yeah. they have. Yeah. 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 You know, I, I'd be, I'm, I'm one that feels pretty strongly against market hunting, but I agree that we, we need to look at ways to in the, in case, and it's a case by case basis, right? You know, you look at a landscape like Iowa where it's so modified from what it originally was that, uh, you know, whatever critters can still hack it here, you know, that's great. And they, they, uh, deer have not had that level of impact here so it's not the same problem but where you're talking that's you know that's a that's a, something that you see and uh you know i think it would be good for um um just maybe selling more tags making tags easier for people to get being willing to not just sell additional um antlerless tags but also maybe sell some buck tags so people are more more uh motivated to buy that extra tag you know what i mean you know what whatever you got to do but i just when i look at the history of market hunting in north america we we pert near wiped out uh what what we had and uh mm-hmm. especially here in iowa um where uh we we lost um a lot of our native species and they have not returned so it's it's uh it's it's something though that that we definitely gotta we gotta look at is how do we handle this better how, you know how from a conservation well, standpoint you know a science based conservation standpoint at that mm-hmm. you had marketing with no rules or regulations whatsoever that's true so there was no there was no quotas I mean we commercial that's fish true. yeah you know we yeah. commercial fish yeah. so I mean. Why, why can we not look at it on that thing? And we got quotas and certain things where you pay to do that. You've got a special license, you know, to commercial fish. Not anyone can be a commercial fisherman. So I think there's some yeah, aspects of that. You know, everybody true. thinks about about market hunting. Well, there was no rules or regulations. It was just wide. It was a money enterprise is what right. it was. Right. Uh, like I said, I look at it as far as a control technique of maybe – you know, modify and get a better gene pool than what we've got out there. Because they, and by end of the state, we're just loaded up with deer. I mean, they are destructive. And then sure. the farmers, they get nuisance tags and they shoot them, and, but they have to leave them laying there. You know, right, they can't yeah, go to a food bank or anywhere. They maybe there. can go to the food bank right now. I don't know. But I mean, you know, we got the hunters for the hungry. And there's a lot of deer that's going in into those, those places there. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, I think there's, you know, I think we need to look at it, you know, to some to some degree to help it. But like I said, I see what I see out there is changed. It is not the same as it used to be. Yeah. And uh, mm-hmm. I'm not talking. I'm talking about our public ground. Our public ground has changed. You know, there's lack of timbering, managing, and the thing is grown up into these older forests they're not right. old growth forests because everything's been logged you know right. there's no yep. such thing yep. in my opinion in the state of kentucky there might be some somewhere in there but not in mind of the state is there right. any old growth forest and, and to me old growth forest is originally that has never ever been logged mm-hmm. you know yeah i can take you a place that that i saw when i was a kid that was just like it looked like a you know a bomb had went off through there mm. but now uh, and that was in like 68 and here in 2022, which is 22 years and what, 32, 54 years. 
mm-hmm. before, so it's like it's 150 years old in there. Yeah, you could have never told that it's been it was logged 50 years ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I was in my lifetime. So people don't realize that. I don't think. Right. But, uh, I mean, oh, you're right. You're right. I and see I, it, and I, I have thought of it from that standpoint too. The commercial, the commercial fishing side of it. That's that's market fishing, and uh, yeah, you got you got a point there. And the fact that there were no rules, or the rules that were there, they weren't enforceable really you know from a realistic standpoint um early on and that that is that is why we ended up with with such a problem there so yeah you're you're right on that and maybe i'm just uh maybe i'm just too gun shy on it but i just look at how <laughs> how bad things got and it, it makes the, the the very words make me nervous but but maybe i should uh be a little more open-minded on that because what you're saying you know, you, you make, you make a good point for sure. And, uh, yeah, as far as the, the old growth versus uh, new growth forests, you know, I was thinking of that the other day, people will complain about, oh man, we used to have so many, so many deer over here in this timber. And, and, you know, 20 years ago, you'd find 30 sheds every spring from all the bucks that were hanging out in there. And now there's nothing. Well, people forget how quickly a a forest changes, and if you don't touch it for so long, it turns into that exact situation where you're talking about. And there's none of that ground cover left for dropping fawns and keeping mm-hmm. them safe, and there's nothing there for rabbits and quail and anything else that you want to be hanging around that that enjoys that scrubbier. That messier floor, I guess you'd say. We an untidy forest is a good forest, and uh, um, yeah, you're right. We gotta we gotta look for ways that that make sense from every angle. So yeah, I I I could uh, you might be able to you might be able to win me over on the uh, regulated, heavily regulated market hunting. Maybe we'll call it that. <laughs> but but uh, <laughs> if you if you ever run for game commissioner. Kevin, you'd have to, you'd have to pitch it to me that way. But, uh, <laughs> no, I, I think, uh, I think you, you make a, you make a good case there. So, well, that's uh that brings us to a good point here, Kevin. If you had a, if you had a manifesto, so this is maybe coming from, uh, the purpose for small game nation. Uh, maybe just what you feel your purpose is as a hunter who's been doing it for a while and looking to other people who may be looking to get into it. Why is hunting small game important going forward as a kind of this hunting lifestyle is considered? Well, you know, it's the heritage of my age of hunters. I mean, Mm -hmm. we all went through that. You started with small game and then you worked your way up. And with that, you built skills, you know, you knew about animals you knew, you know, what the rabbit, the squirrel, the quail did, and then you just worked your way up to, uh, you know, the big game part. Or, sure. you know, you got to shoot a lot, maybe some varmint, you know, like when we had groundhogs, you could practice your skills during the summertime on shooting groundhogs. And so when you got that chance to shoot a deer or something, you were going to be proficient, you know, you, mm-hmm. because you'd had a lot of ammo through your gun and you knew what it would do. Mm-hmm. And like this, to small game hunting, it builds your big game skills. So, I mean, yeah, that's a I really good was, way to put it. Yeah. You know, if you're a deer Love hunter, that. 
you might only shoot, you know, one shot for the next yeah. 10 years. If you're a small game hunter, you know, you may shoot a hundred shots. Yeah. At game. So, mm-hmm. and, you know, if you want to build your skills, small game is the place to do it. That's a great to, point. To, to become, you know, proficient and learning the ways of the, of the, of the woods. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love that. That's a, that's, that's a great point. A great, great starting point, a great way to build your skills uh, going forward. And, and yeah, I like how you said that too, not just shots, but shots at game, because that's, there's a big difference between shooting at a target and shooting at a critter. Um, there's, there's a whole, <laughs> your, your body and mind do a whole different set of, set of wow. things as you're, as you're going through that, you know, that consideration. But yeah, that's a, that's a great point. A paper target. A paper target at a bench never puts you in a compromising situation. <laughs> You're always going to be <laughs> with, right. with the sandbag or something, you know, a rest or whatever. Yeah. And so, yeah. And it's fun. I mean, like I said, you can go out and have fun. It's not, it's not technical. You go out and you can have a good time and you can do it at your leisure. There's yeah. no pressure. Yeah. No pressure that, that, hey, you know, you've got this long season to do it. You don't have just like a week, you know, it's like, you know, with a big game, you've got like a week, mm-hmm. two weeks, whatever. you got that window, and that's it, and it's all over with. With small yeah. game, you got from, you know, in Kentucky from the third Saturday in August all the way to the end of February. You can small game hunt, and then some in the springtime. So yeah. Yeah. you just got that that window of opportunity that's – that if you're a working guy or going to school or something, you can work it in. And just kind of like you with your elk hunt. And you know that you've only got that window – and most likely you're not going to be able to do it. But like I said, you need to go ahead and start putting in for it. If you get the tag, then you, you need to figure out how to go. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's good advice. That's, that's very sound advice. And, and you're right. I do need to just, uh, take advantage of the time that I got now because tomorrow is never guaranteed. And, and, uh, yeah. you get that, you get that, uh, opportunity. You got to take it. So I like that a lot. Well, Kevin, how can uh, people follow along with Small Game Nation? I know you're on Instagram, but uh, you also have a Facebook page. Is that correct? Uh, yes. I spend most of my time on Instagram. It's a lot easier, not mm. convoluted. So, you know, it's nothing but the facts. So, you know, it's Murphy Small Game Nation. You can go there. I try to, to tell a story, you know, about my experiences. I just don't crank something out, you know, like every day or whatever. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, like I said, I do different things and, um, you know, there's more to life than hunting. Yep. Like I said, I like the old stuff and different experiences, food. I like to, you know, ping around. If I go on a hunting trip, I like to go eat where the locals eat, you know, try a new recipe, experiment myself. I've got, my mom gave me an air fryer and I made some biscuits the other day, like in four minutes. Oh you know, man. So, <laughs> the time that, uh, <laughs> I put oh. some sausage in there and time out, the time it was done, I had the biscuits made and put them in there. So, you know, in 10 minutes, I'm eating sausage and biscuits. So you can't oh, be any man. better than that. Nice. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> you can make cat-head biscuits in an air fryer. I did, did find that out and perfecting that method to do that. Mm. Well, pretty much anything in an air fryer is going to be, is going to be spot on. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like I said, I've only had mine for about a month. So, yeah. Uh, I've, I've been experimenting with it and, uh, the biscuits are 
two thumbs up, that's for sure. Nice. Man. You know, I'll tell you what, you got a future talking about food, Kevin, because your description of that and your description of the rabbit tenders got me hankering for a midnight snack. But uh, it's, uh, <laughs> with, with that with that in mind, it is getting it is getting late here, and I am so grateful for you lending us your time, Kevin and Brandon. Thank you to everyone who tuned in for this episode. I'm sure I am confident that you enjoyed it as much as Brandon and I did. Uh, it's just thoroughly enjoyable talking with Kevin, picking his brain on a few things, hearing some really uh, exciting and interesting and maybe even a little bit unexpected when you start hearing stories about like the moose mm, <laughs> in uh, mm-hmm. Maine. But uh, just, uh, just a thoroughly entertaining and educational episode. So thank you, Kevin, for that. And thank you, everyone, for tuning in. Don't forget to check out brandon and uh, his brothers out in delaware go to thehuntfishlife.com you will find links to their social media pages our good buddy alex gruen he couldn't join us on this episode but uh don't forget about going to alexgruen.com that that code first gen 10 will save you 10 percent off of a tag application service and hunt planning service from alex and uh don't forget about our title sponsor as well good old spartan forge best way to head into the deer woods is with spartan forge in your pocket make sure you uh get the app and uh start learning more about the deer in your area but also enjoying the mapping features and help yourself get unlost when you're out rabbit hunting or shed hunting um like uh happened to me about a week ago I used it to get myself unlost. So uh, <laughs> it's uh, it's good to get out there and wander deep into the woods, though. So have Spartan Forge along with you. And don't forget to head over to firstgenhunter.com and uh, keep interacting with me. I got some uh, cool feedback from a listener that we're going to talk about soon on an episode of, uh, of Hunt Therapy. And uh, just kind of a continuation of a previous conversation. Some great thoughts to put in there. So make sure you... Uh, you uh speak up if you're listening love to hear from you thank you gavin thank you again kevin and thank you brandon thoroughly thoroughly enjoyed it fellas and uh to everyone else have a good one take care and take someone hunting